Good morning. My name is Brian, and I'll be reading the scripture this morning. You can follow along on the screen um, or in your scripture journal um, or through the YouVersion app, as Meredith mentioned. <clears throat> we'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thanks, Brian. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to be here. <laughs> really excited about today, really humbled to be uh, in this spot this morning uh, to unpack an incredible text with you this morning. Uh, as Meredith already mentioned, we're in the final week of a series called Illuminated, and uh, we've titled this message, Illuminated Freedom. Illuminated Freedom. I've loved how Jesus has been the key to illuminating uh, our situation, our lives over the past six weeks, and uh, this, this week proves to be no different. Uh, we just heard Brian uh, talk about how Jesus brings freedom, freedom from fear, uh, freedom from our the circumstances and situations that keep us down, and you know, anytime you hear a story about overcoming fear or a passage of scripture about overcoming fear, uh, obviously there's only one thing that comes to mind. Uh, that's the funniest movie of 1990, Home Alone. Uh, obviously, I'm, I don't have to tell you that because Home Alone is a story about Kevin overcoming all of his fears in just a couple of days. I mean, think about, remember when he was afraid to sleep with his cousin who wets the bed? Overcame that fear. He was afraid of being up in the attic alone. Overcame that fear. Uh, the shovel-wielding neighbor. Overcame that fear, you know. And uh, obviously, uh, people wanted to kill him and stuff in the middle of all of that. But uh, he overcame all of this fear. And so, of course, I think of Kevin, right? That's tis the season. Now, here's the deal. Uh, I wish life were that easy. You know what I mean? Like, all of his situations kind of got wrapped up in an hour and a half and we can move on with our merry way, you know, but it doesn't work that way in life. If we're honest with ourselves, we actually give way more authority uh, to fear uh, in, our, uh, in our life than we'd like to admit. Uh, you know, we put on a good face. We say, ah, you know, no big deal. But uh, when we lay our heads on our pillow at night, uh, chances are there's things that you think about that uh, cause you fear. And if we're really honest with ourselves, that fear uh, causes us to act or not act in certain ways. Um, whether it's fear stemming from what we've experienced in the past, or maybe it's fear about what's about to happen in the future, uh, we let it dictate more than we like to let on. I have a lot of stories about fear <laughs> in my life. Um, but when you become a parent, if there's any parents in the room, uh, you have a whole level of fear that you've never experienced before. Uh, and it's all of a sudden, like, the law requires you to care for people. <laughs> uh, and that brings with it a level of fear that um, trumps anything that I experienced before I had kids. And You know, I remember when Isaac was learning to walk. He was around one years old or so. We lived in an apartment uh, that was one floor, 
and it was really conducive to learning how to walk because uh, we had enough furniture, soft furniture where Isaac could kind of pull himself up and kind of waddle over and try to get to the next set of furniture. Um, and when he got really good with that, he pulled himself up and then waddled over to a wall. And the way the uh, apartment was set up was kind of like a big track. So you would walk into our apartment and you'd walk into the kitchen and you would turn left, and the back wall would keep going, but the front wall would stop so that you could open up into the living room. And it was really good for learning how to walk because Isaac could grab a hold of the kitchen wall and walk around into the living room and go down the little hallway there, come back around and go into the kitchen and just kind of keep doing that over and over again. And it was great for mom and dad because we could just sit down and (laughs) relax for a moment. Uh, But I remember this one time in particular, we were in the living room and we thought it was cute. He was making noises and he was walking along the hallway part and moved into the kitchen part. uh, And... Usually, it took, you know, 60 seconds or so to make the track around back into the living room. Um, And this time was a little bit longer and didn't really think too much of it uh, until we saw little Isaac coming around the corner, but he wasn't holding on to the wall anymore. Uh, He was holding on to this butcher knife. It was... We walked around the corner with this knife in his hand, you know, and a huge smile on his face, you know, like, yeah, look what I got, woohoo! And, uh, you know, I, I know that scientists will tell you that when confronted with fear, humans have a fight or flight response, you know, like uh, something happens, but for me in that moment, I just froze. I just froze. I remember being like, oh, what am I seeing right now, you know? Uh, it was horrifying, and uh, I wasn't scared that something was going to happen to me, you know, like, a little Chucky doll walking around the corner or something, you know. Uh, Obviously, I wasn't afraid for my own life. I was afraid for what was about to happen. You know, Isaac, here's this wobbling toddler with a death instrument in his hand. And uh, I should have, maybe better dads would have immediately run up, you know, and grabbed the, you know, the butcher knife out of his hand and picked him up. But I just froze. It was scary. There are... There are times in our lives where fear, uh, that thing that we're scared of, will cause us to run away. You know, for my wife, it's spiders. If she runs the opposite direction. For me, it's clowns. I will go in the opposite direction. Sorry if there's any part-time clown people here. But there are, there are other times when there's a next-level fear, right? We've experienced that next-level fear. That thing that we're scared of uh, causes us this gut-level, internal Uh, reaction to just freeze where we are uh, in our current condition. The question I want to start off with this morning uh, is this. Why is it so easy to let fear immobilize us? Why is it so easy to let fear immobilize us? Now, I'm not talking about fight or flight. I'm not talking about those situations where you get startled by something. I'm talking about life situations that cause us fear or situations where we look back on our past and think, man, I can never get over that. And we just allow those fears to keep us right where we are, immobilize us. Now, that's a a question we're going to unpack as we go through the text this morning. Uh, But I think it begins with believing the lie uh, that fear tells about us. So maybe you fear failure because you're, um, you know, you're you're fearing this failure idea and you're immobilized when your boss asks you uh, to, to take the lead on a project. You know, fear will lie to you and will tell you that you're a perpetual failure and then you believe that lie. You say, I could never do that. Or maybe you fear rejection so you never date and, uh, You don't want to put yourself out there, and so you believe 
the lie that fear says, you know, that you're unlovable. You begin to believe that thing. Maybe it's a fear of losing the safety net of a career or a relationship uh, or some other current reality. And uh, you never step out in faith or change what God is asking you to change because fear is telling you something and you just believe it. You take it for what it says. Whatever that lie speaks over you, uh, there's something that this passage makes abundantly clear. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's kind of like ripping a Band-Aid off, you know, real quick. It might get worse before it gets better. Because what this text is actually telling us is that even if all forms of failure and rejection uh, and external danger were removed from your experience and you had this perfect life, all the, the things you ever dreamed of, uh, you would still be crushed and broken by a far greater power than an unyielding boss or a bad date, right? There's something inside of us that uh, causes us to fear or should cause us to fear so that even if the external realities of life were all fixed and we lived the dream life and, and had nothing wrong, we would still have something inside of us, the sin that is generated from a heart uh, that is bent against God's will and God's way uh, will lead us to this place of death. And there's nothing that we can do within ourselves to escape it. That's kind of what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's the old statistic. As the old statistic goes like this. One out of every one people uh, who are alive today will die. Now, I just ripped the Band-Aid off, okay? So it gets better from here. These verses are actually very, very encouraging and filled with hope, but we had to give the wound some air so that way we can, we can address it, right? So here's what uh, verses 14 and 15 say. Again, as we jump into them, I want you to pay attention to the areas of your life that you might be believing what fear is saying about you. Here's these verses again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Lifelong slavery. That's an interesting passage. There, I was preparing for this message and I was really surprised at how many times this passage in Hebrews was used as a Christmas sermon or an Easter sermon. Christmas, because that word partook, implies that Jesus had to have flesh and blood in order to experience everything uh, that we experience. Those of us that have flesh and blood, um, Jesus had to, to partake of that same situation. So Jesus was born. We celebrate that at Christmas. Easter, because his death means that the captor is destroyed and that we're delivered from that thing that makes death so scary. So we're talking about death, and so as Jesus overcame death at Easter, we celebrate that. But it's interesting to note that as much faith as you may have as a Christian, or as much skepticism as you may have as someone who's not a Christ follower yet, uh, that every single one of us start our story with birth, and we end our earthly story with death. There's really no other way. We see some examples in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament where uh, People don't die or don't have that traditional death story. However, we're all born, right? We're all born. So Jesus had to be born. All of us will die. Jesus had to die. And so I love how verse 15 says, he will deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the consequence of the fear of death is lifelong slavery. If you think about... Uh, people that are afraid and they're locked up, people like me who just freeze 
when next level fear kind of attacks them, uh, it, the imagery of slavery really hits home. You know, you're, you're trapped, you're trying to get out of something in prison and you just can't do it. And just to give you a little bit of the backstory of Hebrews, if anyone was familiar with the fear of death, it was those people to whom Hebrews was addressed. And there are some issues. Um, people kind of begin to dialogue about who they actually were or what their actual situation was. But what, what is agreed upon is that these were people that were persecuted for their belief in Jesus. It was a group of people uh, who were facing even death as a result of saying yes to following Christ. And so it's easy to imagine that the writer of Hebrews had this in mind when he wrote about this and that those who were um, in that situation had a fear of death and it was keeping them from the living out of the commandments that Jesus asks us to live out. It was immobilizing them, right? It was keeping them uh, in bondage that comes with fear. However, we certainly don't need to be in danger of losing our lives, right, to understand what it's like to be immobilized by fear. Uh, when my one-year-old had a butcher knife for a split second, it was like I was in slavery, right? I was, there's nothing that I could do. I was completely immobilized by that. I wanted to do something about the fear, but I was so shocked that I froze. You have a story like that. Maybe not like that, but you have a story where uh, in your life you wanted to do something. You wanted to take action, but something some kind of fear caused you to stay where you were. Maybe you wanted to say something, but you couldn't. Maybe you wanted to act, but you couldn't. Whatever it was. I'm often surprised at how long it takes a person in a terrible relationship uh, to see what everybody else around them sees, right? And everybody else who loves them very much says, listen, this is not healthy. This is not right for you. Uh, maybe they fear being alone. Or maybe they even fear having an uncomfortable situation with a person that they're in a relationship with. So they let fear keep them from doing what is healthiest for them. But in my experience, uh, I was a youth pastor uh, for about 10 years. And uh, in the early dating days, you're 14, 15, 16 years old. You're like, that's terrible. And... Uh, you know, it doesn't just happen to teenagers, it happens to adults as well, but almost every single time, after a while, when they finally, you know, parents don't really, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. My youth pastor doesn't know what I'm they're talking about. Finally, the light bulb goes off, and uh, every time they realize, wait a second, I can do something about this, that the slavery that I put myself in is, is of my own doing, right? And the light bulb goes off, and they see the relationship for what it really is, but by then, They've experienced some unhealth. They've experienced some things that would uh, damage relationships or uh, have negative consequences that they wish they could go back and reverse. So notice then how the writer of Hebrews states that Jesus' death frees us not just from uh, bondage, but from the lifelong slavery of the fear of death. Lifelong. Now, how does that happen? If you're like me, you, you're like, that's amazing. So Walk me through how that happens, Jesus. I, want to, I really want to know because I don't like the feeling of being afraid. Clearly, death still affects Christians. And if you're a Christian in the room, uh, you're still sad and scared maybe even and confused at times about why death uh, has to happen the way that it does. Even the most faithful Christ followers have those emotions experienced around death. But because Jesus was willing to partake of the same things 
that those of us with flesh and blood experience uh, and that we endure, we get a glimpse into the kind of love that changes our very identity. So what we see here is that death is still, can be still very sad and you're still allowed to feel the emotions that are associated with that. Uh, I do feel like sometimes we do a, a disservice to people who are, are mourning or experiencing those kind of things because we say, yeah, but in, in our best efforts, you know, like we really mean to say nice things to people who are mourning and we say, yeah, but remember, they're in a better place. And you're like, I don't care. They're not with me. That's where I want them to be. Or, oh, you know what? God's got it all. You don't have to be sad. You're like, just let me be sad. <laughs> just let me be sad for a moment. I think what the writer of Hebrews is expressing here isn't that you don't have to feel emotion around fear or you don't have to feel emotion around death. I think what it's saying is if you got a glimpse of the love that Jesus has by emptying himself, becoming flesh and blood, uh, you would see that those emotions are okay and you will move into a more profound understanding of the gospel as a result of that love. You know, St. Augustine said that what really gives you your identity, uh, what makes you who you are, it isn't what you believe. No, it isn't what uh, you say, or it's not even how you behave. Augustine said, it's what you love, that you are what you love. And when we see Jesus say yes to the majesty uh, of heaven, he understands in the majesty of heaven, he says yes to his father's will to uh, be born in a manger, and to endure the hard upbringing of a carpenter and suffer persecution in the hands of people that he loved and be betrayed by friends that he invested in and suffer an excruciatingly painful and humiliating death for you, for me, for us, in order to free us from the lifelong bondage of our own doing, well, then we're changed by that kind of love, aren't we? We just can't help but be changed by it. I love that the New Testament says that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance so that we don't get browbeaten into uh, asking forgiveness for our sins. Uh, we don't get shamed into it or condemned into it. Uh, if you've grown up in a situation where uh, you had to feel guilt and shame for your sin, you know that you would repent so that you didn't feel that guilt and shame anymore, but you probably went right back later on uh, to that same thing. So the, the New Testament says that it's God's kindness, it's his love that leads us. When we get a glimpse of that love, it changes us. It changes our entire identity. And so uh, if we see Jesus simply as a great example, let's say, of how to sacrifice for others, and we see like, wow, that's, he was a great dude. And, you know, what a, what a wonderful example of sacrifice. We may behave differently for a time, and we may even behave differently for a long time, uh, but it won't free us from fear because in that scenario, Jesus is a behavior checklist, right? He's not the loving older brother uh, who died on our behalf so that we can be freed from fear. He's just this, this thing that we have to kind of live up to. And when you realize that you can't live up to the perfection of Jesus, you stop trying. There's no reason to because I can't do it. Or if we see Jesus as a really, really good teacher, who said some incredible things and uh, who was right all of the time and told us what's right and what's wrong, uh, then it may change our beliefs. But Augustine says that it won't change our identity because it's like somebody telling you that they love you, but not showing you. You know, to say, hey, Naomi, I really love you. I don't want to spend time with you or anything. 
Uh, I'm not going to serve you in any way. Uh, but hey, listen, if you need to hear it, just know it, right? No. Unless I show somebody that I love them through my time, through uh, serving, whatever it may be, uh, then the words are just hollow and empty. So if Jesus is a really good teacher and says, do right things, stop doing wrong things, and remember, I love you, but we don't see the action taking place to showcase that love in an incredible way, it doesn't change our identity. It changes our behavior. It changes uh, what we may say, but it doesn't change our hearts. And therefore, it doesn't change our identity. So then, how did Jesus show his love? These verses laid out, but I want to really dive into verse 17, uh, if I can. It says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Don't you love SAT words in the middle of... Uh, of the passage. Propitiation, we'll get into that in just a second, but Hebrews tells us that the act of Jesus becoming fully human in every respect caused him to become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So if you don't have a history with the Old Testament or don't really understand what a high priest is or what a high priest did, uh, the role of a high priest included entering into the tabernacle or the temple, the Holy of Holies, once a year and offering a sacrifice that would make atonement or propitiation or forgiveness for the sins of not just himself, but for the entire community that he served. So the entire nation of Israel as that nation developed. So he would offer the sacrifices. He would do the work of sacrificing. And then when the high priest did that work, it was intended to cover over or forgive the sins of the people. So we have Jesus who has done that for us on our behalf and has made propitiation, has, has forgiven us of our sins, covered them so that uh, uh, God, the Father, no longer sees our sin, but sees his blood covered over that mercy seat. Now, here's why that matters to you and to me today. Because if we think about what sin and guilt represent, sin and guilt represent the past. And death represents the future. So I'm going to say it this way. Death is fear of the future, while guilt is fear of the past. Death is fear of the future, while guilt is fear of the past. And let me break it down a little bit. When I feel the fear of death, I'm afraid of what's going to happen to future me. If I'm afraid of, oh no, what happens when I die? Or what happens when that person that I love dies? Future me will be impacted. I'm afraid of that. But when I feel guilt, I'm afraid of past me, the things that I've done or the things that I haven't done that keep me up at night, and I'm enslaved by the decisions of past me, of, of days gone by. And so you may not think of guilt in terms of fear, but if you've ever been just uh, completely immobilized by something that has happened in the past, that can be fear, just stopping you because past you made a terrible decision or didn't make the decision that you knew you were supposed to. So by one act of immense and incredible love, Jesus has destroyed the power of past fear, guilt became a propitiation, and the power of future fear, which is death. So in this verse, we see fear alleviated completely in the past, in the, in the future, so that present you can be free to live out today 
this very moment uh, with nothing to fear at all. That's a beautiful understanding of, of what the writer of Hebrews is breaking down. Now, currently, in this moment, I'm free. Regardless of what I've done in the past, regardless of what is about to happen to me in the future, I am free. And it's not a pie-in-the-sky kind of idea that like, oh, if you, I just believe hard enough that Jesus is good, then it doesn't matter what happens to me today. People can beat me up and rob me blind and all that kind of stuff, but I got to be good about it, right? No, this is reality. If it changes our heart and our very nature because of his powerful love, we will begin to, to have the, the chains lifted off our understanding and we will see that we are truly free. I want to say it this way. Let's say you owned a trillion-dollar offshore bank account. That'd be amazing, right? You're Cayman Islands. You had a trillion dollars, not a billion, a trillion dollars. It's like you can live off the interest from your interest, right? That would be, that would be pretty awesome. Uh, and now let's say you celebrate because your bank account just hit a trillion dollars, and you go out to eat, and uh, you, put your, you got some money. You got $5 in your jacket. You keep it on the chair. You go to the bathroom, come back. You've been pickpocketed. $5 is gone, right? I know. Cooper's like, oh my Lord. $5 is gone. If you're a trillionaire, how do you respond, right? Do you get all bent out of shape and go crazy because somebody has taken $5 from you? Or do you say, listen, I have an endless supply of $5 bills. It's actually kind of funny that someone thought that they would rob me of the $5 in my pocket because I have as many $5 bills as I ever need. So the truth is, is that if you do get angry and you freak out a little bit and lose your mind because of that $5 bill, the people in your world would probably remind you, listen, man, you're a trillionaire. Uh, if you need $5, I actually will give it to you, but you have a trillion dollars at your disposal right now. You need people in your life that will remind you of the perspective that you should have, right? Now, that's my job today. That's what I'm doing today. I'm here to remind you and, and maybe even inform you for the very first time that when Jesus destroyed the guilt of the past and the fear of the future, it left you a spiritual trillionaire, a spiritual trillionaire. So we certainly don't have to get bent out of shape anymore when our boss doesn't recognize our work, right? We don't have to go on social media and say, what a jerk, you know, and all those kind of things because we have a God who loves us so much that he, he reveals himself as the God who sees us. And we definitely don't have to fall into that comparison trap on Instagram. I'll raise my hand for you so you don't have to raise your hand like that's what we do, you know. Uh, you don't have to feel jealousy well up inside of you when that person buys that thing you wanted or takes that trip that you wanted to take or has the house that, man, has that feature that you definitely need in your house. You don't have to feel uh, jealous anymore and get worked up anymore because Jesus loved you and thought of you so much that he was willing to endure separation from his heavenly father as he went to the cross for you, for you. So that fear can be alleviated and is gone. When we see Jesus committing that act of love on your behalf, everything changes. Our identity changes completely. And it's not a matter of thinking better or believing harder or uh, fitting the right description now. It's a matter of leaning into that love and having love totally transform us, transform our identity. Let's confirm it by looking at that last verse, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. 
It says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For me, the the key word in this verse, the word that draws me so close to Jesus, is that word suffered in there. The Greek word is paponthain. Not that you really really need to know that, but the word paponthain means to experience ill treatment. And so if I imagine Jesus in heaven uh, getting uh, the instructions from his heavenly father, the request for him to fulfill the father's plan to come to earth, be born in a manger, live a perfect sinless life on our behalf, and then die an excruciating death, Uh, thinking about what the word uh, suffered means while he's in the glory and majesty of heaven, it's a game changer for me. It's a game changer because it reminds me that he didn't leave the bounty of heaven and agree to all of those things, even though it would be like inconvenient or that earth might be a little boring compared to how awesome heaven is. But if I have to, I guess I'll give up an afternoon, you know, to kind of help out those people down there. No, Papanthane, he suffered. He experienced ill treatment. Even when he didn't have to, he experienced ill treatment. He suffered, the Lord of creation. So this entire passage showcases the bravery, what can be called bravery that you and I find hard to conceive. Now, what would it take for you to exhibit that kind of bravery in your own life? You think about that just for a moment. What would it take for you to exhibit that kind of bravery? You would have to be motivated by something pretty darn amazing, right? Motivated by something amazing. I, I had a conversation uh, with a preaching and teaching team uh, a few months ago. We were kind of talking about this passage and, and the theme of Hebrews. And um, it really illuminated my thinking about bravery because what I thought, I thought that the opposite of fear would be bravery. You think about when you're afraid of something, in order to get over that fear, you have to be brave. Uh, If I'm afraid of something, I need to be brave to uh, rise up to the challenge to overcome that fear. The more fearful I am, the braver I'll have to be. I learned that at a very, very young age. I think uh, a lot of us grew up reading stories of knights and dragons and superheroes and warriors who kind of risk everything uh, in the midst of their fear. But when everybody else was afraid, they overcame it and they stepped up and they were brave, right? They're brave enough to save the day. Hollywood has made millions of dollars on this theme. Uh, Books have been written for centuries on this theme. And so in my mind, that's just kind of how life works. If you want to overcome fear, you have to have the opposite of that. And that's bravery. But that's not really the opposite of fear, uh, is it? It was uh, actually Tara Dolan who took the lead in the conversation. And uh, if you remember, Augustine said that what changes our identity uh, is what we love. And so if you're brave, it's because you're willing to fight for the things or the people that have your heart. You're not saying, you know what, I don't care about this kingdom, but I think I'm going to be brave anyway. Uh, Or, uh, you know what, I could really just walk away because I hate this group, but I guess I'll show up and be brave anyway. Bravery is just a reaction to the love that you feel. So then the opposite of fear isn't bravery. The opposite of fear would be love. And when you love, you react. You react in bravery. You react by saying, listen, I am not going to let fear keep me uh, immobilized any longer. Because I love my wife, I'm going to kill the spider. 
Because I love my family, I'm going to make sure that I work as hard as I possibly can so that they can have food on the table and clothes on their back. Because I love Jesus, I'm going to commit my life to doing what he asked me to do. Not because if I do so, then I'll be in with him. Or if I work hard enough, then maybe I can earn my way to heaven. But because I'm responding to a love that I've already known and experienced, I am going to reciprocate love and work so that other people can see the love that I already know. Jesus was full of what can only be called bravery uh, as he began to assess the cross and say yes to his father's plan. He's in a garden called Gethsemane uh, and he's faced with the reality of death. But I don't think it was just the physical pain that he was about to experience that he was second-guessing. I actually think that he was beginning to realize what it would be like for the very first time ever uh, to be apart from his father. To have severed relationship because once he was nailed to that cross, the sins of humanity, what you and I have done and haven't done, were nailed to that cross with him. The New Testament says that he became sin who knew no sin for us. And he began to look out and realize, hey, if I say yes to this, relationship will be severed. I'll be apart. I'll be alone, apart from my heavenly father. And I think, if, as I begin to think about that, I imagine that that fear was far greater than having nails through your, your hands and your feet, being humiliated naked on a cross. I think that that's what's, what caused him to say, listen, if there be any other way, God, that we can do this thing apart from that, nevertheless, not your will, not my will, excuse me, <laughs> your will be done. Not my will, your will be done. He didn't say that because he was thinking, if I just check this last box off, I'll be good to go. He was saying, I love you, God. You're my father, I love you. And I love these people and I will do anything so that we can be united together. If there be another way, let's figure that out. But if not, I want your will. That was an act of love to Papanthane, to suffer. He saw uh, that fear would hold us in slavery all of our lives. And because of his love for us, he braved the suffering of temptation, death, and hell itself. So I'll say it again, by one act of love, Jesus eradicated the fear of what I've done and he's eradicated the fear of what's to come. When we couldn't muster up the bravery that we needed to escape from lifelong slavery of fear, Jesus laid down his life for us. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel laid out for us in Hebrews. Now we can see what real freedom looks like because freedom doesn't have the final word, or excuse me, fear doesn't have the final word anymore uh, in our lives. We recognize the lie that it's spoken over us and we say, no, Jesus, his truth speaks a better word over us. I choose to believe that truth and lean into that love. These verses remind us that when we're paralyzed by fear and we start to believe it's lies, God said that you were, were worth fighting for. That he loved you so much that you were worth fighting for. You were worth leaving the comfort of heaven and enduring the propanthane of this life so that he could be with you. And if I believe this, if I really let it sink into my spirit and let that kind of love change my identity, then my past and my future no longer have a hold on me. I have the power to be brave and fight for what matters most. So now if we think about it, bravery gets turned on its head. 
because Jesus loved us and was brave on our behalf, we can now be brave. We can be brave on our behalf, sure, or we could lean into the example of Christ and be brave on behalf of others. When I'm nervous to share the gospel with people next to me, I can be brave because I realize that that love changes everything. And when I'm fearful of what it might be like to take the next step in my relationship with God because I think it might be bondage and rules and regulations, I can say, no, I realize that that love frees me and I can run to that next step, whatever that next step may look like. So then let's ask the question that this text requires of us because I believe that a text as beautiful as this uh, forces us to respond, right? So here's my question. Where will I function with bravery because of who God says I am? Where will I function with bravery because of who God says I am? In other words, what requires me to stand up for it in my life? Who needs me to be brave on their behalf? Who needs me to share Jesus with them uh, in spite of what may happen to my reputation uh, or to that relationship? Where do I need to function in bravery? Where do I have to have fear, have its hold on me released so that in love I can serve and I can change and I can grow? I'd ask if you would bow your heads, your hearts with me as we, as we pray. What a joy it is to have our hearts respond to this text with worship. Because worship really is just a response to our love, right? Worship and love go hand in hand. And so as we pray, I'm just going to ask God to kind of remind us of his love and how he's replaced the bondage of fear with the freedom of love. And if you think that's weird, you don't have to uh, close your eyes. If you're going to be distracted by what's coming up this afternoon, you can keep them open and uh, stay focused on the text. But let's believe together. Uh, as we begin to respond to this uh, passage, that Christ's love will indeed change our very identity. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you didn't leave us here as orphans. Nor did you uh, leave us a checklist to try to fill out in hopes that it would change us from the inside out and eradicate uh, sin and death and hell. Thank you, God, that your plan was to send Jesus to live the life that we could never live and die the death that we deserve to die. Thank you that we see through your word what kind of love it took to be brave enough to endure suffering. And God, I pray that we would see, maybe even for the first time, how that love frees us from the past and frees us from the future so that in this moment we can serve and worship and love you in return. I pray that you be glorified in our lives. And as we reflect on this text, Lord God, may our hearts come alive, our ears be open, and may our our hearts give back to you in worship in this moment. We pray it in Jesus' name.